For 15 years now, Mark Fainaruwada has been in the investigative unit of ESPN and authors not always, but regularly with his brother, Steve Fainaru. And they have published uh, just this week an article about Brooklyn Nets owner Joe Tsai and the complicated relationship of the NBA and China. And uh, uh, Mark is here to talk with us a little bit about that. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Anytime, John, of course. Good to talk to you. Good to see you. You know, it's intriguing, thanks, um, that that you're still allowed or you are allowed um, to write about things that may be sensitive to the mothership. Let's just go right to the let's go right to the <laughs> the 800 pound uh, gorilla in the room, right? The elephant in the room is that ESPN is a partner, <laughs> does business. Disney does business in China. ESPN is a partner with NBA in China. There's just a lot of complicated relationships here you deal with. Um, do you have to navigate that at all in the building? And if so, how do you do it? I mean, yeah, I think it's, look, it's, you know, I, I think it would be lying to say it's not, it's not without its complications, of course, like it's a weird deal, right? I mean, I, I think, you know, Steve and I, fortunately, are somewhat used to dealing with this and our investigative unit is, frankly, I, I mean, you know, part of the unit's charge is to do these kinds of stories that are often about our business partners. And so, you know, prior to, you know, Steve and I spent several years and, you know, wrote a book about, you know, the, the ESPN's largest business partner, the NFL, and denial over the issue of football and brain damage. And, you know, it creates certainly interesting dynamics at times um, that sometimes make things complicated or sometimes lead our bosses to get phone calls that are not fun for them to take. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I have to say it's for the, you know, ESPN has been really supportive of us doing this work. And, um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of messages um, today of like, wow, I'm really surprised ESPN did this. And the reality is, you know, I, again, I've been there 15 years. And, and when I went, one of the questions I had before I took the job was, is this going to be a problem? Is this going to be an issue? And I was assured it wouldn't be. And, and we've been really, you know, um, backed up and supported to be able to do this kind of work. So is this in some respects, a, a kind of a John Skipper legacy? where you know they brought him in years and years ago and you wanted to do journalism and he's no longer there but you guys are still doing journalism and doing some serious journalism yeah i mean i know you know i don't i don't know the the history predating um skipper certainly but i know that when i came to the company you know there was definitely this edict and a, and a demand they were creating frankly the investigative unit that i joined um they have they were they had been doing that kind of work um, but they really ratcheted it up and and created a unit that was built around a number of people, um, you know, and I was fortunate enough to join it. And, and, um, and there was incredible support to do this kind of work. And, and since then, you know, since, since Skipper has left, and now we have Jimmy Pataro as the, the, the leader of, the, of, the, uh, of ESPN. And, um, you know, and there's been no, you know, sense that we can't do this work anymore. It shouldn't be. And, you know, we've had the good fortune of meeting and talking to Jimmy at various points, and he's been nothing but supportive of of our unit, um, you know, addressing stories that are, are frankly, as you say, complicated for the network. And, and I, you know, of course, like, I don't think, you know, the NBA does not like this story. We spent time, you know, with them on the phone at various points and they're just not happy, but you know, this is the part of, this is what we do. You know, I sort of, you know, I, I feel like it's, I feel like we'd be failing if we weren't doing stories that were sort of focused on this issue. So let's um, let's go back a step here now and sort of explain what we're talking about. Uh, big uh, article posted April 14. Joe Sy for the last two and a half years has been the sole owner of the Brooklyn Nets. Also one of the people, the right hand man to um, uh, at Alibaba in China. He's a 
Canadian, American, Chinese businessman, billionaire. And uh, the story essentially is about Psy, but it is beyond that. It's about it's about a major American business, the NBA, and how it has to navigate China. And it probably could represent, could it not, Mark, a, a thousand other businesses, 2,000 other corporations in America who are doing business in China? I mean, I think in some ways, yes. I mean, and I think, I think, I think in some ways the NBA wishes like, well, why, why are we going after the NBA instead of writing about Apple and you know, or, or, or anybody or Nike or what, you know, my answer is, well, you're, you know, we're a sports network. So um, there's plenty of opportunities to do those stories. But I, I think, yes, that's a very real issue for a lot of companies that are doing business in China. I, I think the unique piece about the NBA is twofold. One, you know, basketball is so hugely popular there. Fans are, are wild about it. And I mean, sure, people love Apple products, for example, or other goods that they get. But there's a sort of cultural phenomenon around sports, certainly, and even more so around basketball. So I think that's part of it. And then, of course, they thrust themselves into this situation or they were thrust into this situation um, in 2019 when Daryl Morey, then the manager, general manager of the, of the, the Houston Rockets, tweeted uh, his support of Hong Kong uh, uh, protesters who were protesting for a sort of a pro-democracy movement there. And... Um, And I think that's when we really grew interested in the issue and the story is, you know, we, we knew nothing really about sort of the dynamic between China and the NBA. Um, and seeing the way that tweet changed everything really and the aftermath and the reaction to it um, was startling, right? The NBA suddenly was off in China. Sponsors fled like crazy. Um, Silver got it from both sides. Uh, first from, the from, you know, partly from China over his support for free expression and partly from politicians here in the States on both sides of the aisle who felt like he was somehow kowtowing to China. So, um, you know, it's a really complicated dynamic for, for the NBA and, you know, it's just really fruitful reporting area um, to take a look at. So in a nutshell here, Mark, would you kind of explain to us what the story is and, and sure. what you're reporting? Yeah, so so we decided after the Mori tweet back in 2019 sort of exposed these tensions between the NBA and China that we would, we really wanted to look at different ways in which that manifested. And we ended up with there were abuses involving uh, Chinese coaches hitting kids, and they'd open one of those academies in this region um, uh, that is uh, uh, Xinjiang, which is in Western China, where um, the, the um, human rights, some of the worst human rights abuses in the world have been alleged against China by human rights organizations, the United States, other countries calling it a cultural genocide. So one of the things we really grew fascinated in was after the Mori tweet, Joe Tsai, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, he posted on Facebook this fairly impassioned explanation of why he thought it was so problematic that Maury had tweeted um, what he did. And, um, and it, was, it was very much a defense of, and an explanation of why the Chinese people were so upset, why uh, um, it was really problematic. And one of the things he, he, he somewhat, um, you know, he, at least, you know, Maury's people feel like he, he entirely miscast Maury's position. So we, we, we decided to, that Tsai, given his background, was a, was a really good way into looking at the tensions between the NBA and China. Because Tsai's background is fascinating. He, 
He is, as you, you said at the onset, he's the co-founder of this company, Alibaba, which has been likened to Amazon on steroids. It's a um, Chinese-based company founded in China. He co-founded it with uh, Jack Ma. And um, they're into everything in the same way that Amazon is and only bigger. Um, and, um, and then at the same time, um, you know, you've got this guy who's been very active around the social justice movement in the United States, who's been advocating and spending money on support for uh, anti-Asian hate against anti-Asian hate crimes and um, very supportive of Black Lives Matter and, um, and really pushing social justice issues here in the States. Um, but when asked about human rights issues in China, seems to be much more circumspect. So we just decided, let's take a really deep dive into Psy uh, and what, what might that reveal? And it was really quite revealing, frankly, that a couple of things that were most notable. One was um, when you looked at Psy's comments about China and the way it does business, um, there was almost a, a sort of ex explanation of that, that um, in order for China to sort of succeed economically and push itself economically to get closer to the United States, uh, that it needed to, and it was understandable that it might um, be less uh, open to some of the personal freedoms that we know and expect in the US. And that that might be a sacrifice and a cost benefit analysis that needed to happen in China. Um, you know, fairly controversial position here in the States, right? Um, and then secondly, Alibaba, um, had ownership stakes in two uh, artificial intelligence companies that had been linked by the United States and identified by the United States as part of the surveillance state in this in this Western region of China that was, you know, um, basically racially profiling, you know, million more than a million Uyghur Muslims, putting them in re-education camps, as the Chinese call them. And um, we just thought that was really fascinating um, to look at. So how long did you guys work on this story before it was published? You know, I, I think probably in total a year, you know, we were working on different stories, both of us and chasing different things. Um, you know, and again, we've been working on China since 2019, really producing stories. Um, but this one probably, you know, with everything, with different things going on, probably ended up a total of a year, maybe it might've been, you know, less, a direct time on it, but about a year. And that includes the reporting, the writing, the editing, the fact checking twice, three times, four times. <laughs> make Everything. sure that yeah, exactly. Make sure that the that the 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 Disney folks understand what you're doing and the ESPN people understand what you're doing. All of that. Do you have to do all of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the story has to go through a number of levels as it does it, you know, when I worked at the San Francisco Chronicle, same deal, stories went up the chain. Different animal here, of course, is because as we pointed out, you've got these business relationships. And so, um, you know, these, these are reaching the highest levels of the company. And, and at the same time, we're being trying to be very transparent about that issue. I mean, you know, in the story, we note that Disney has its own conflicts. ESPN has its own part ownership in NBA China and has a partnership with Tencent, the streaming company in, in China that shows NBA games. So, you know, we're not trying to run from that. I think it's really important to be transparent as you can about these conflicts and you know otherwise people are just going to call you on that mm -hmm. i think if i did the math correctly that the investment that the espn has in nba china is worth about 250 million dollars something like that is that right yeah and i think it's it's the largest individual shareholder um you know the the nba owns 
there's 11% that's owned outside of the NBA, 5% by NBA by ESPN, and then another 6% um, combined between three or four Chinese-based companies. And, um, and then the league owns about 90, 89% of it between the 30 teams. But yeah, I think, you know, 5 billion, uh, you know, 5% of 5 billion. Yeah, that's a lot of money. That's a big chunk of change. It is. It yeah. is. But, you know, it didn't keep them keep them from uh, from supporting the work. Right. So let me ask you this. Um, the NBA, since even before Daryl Morey, but but certainly in the wake of Daryl Morey, hasn't really, it seems to me, done a good job of explaining itself vis-a-vis uh, -vis its business relationship with China. Um relative to the other kinds of, of social justice efforts that they have domestically in the U.S. Is that fair? Well, I think it is. I mean, I, I think the reality is, you know, like a lot of companies, they, you know, they don't really know what to say, I think. Like, they're in a hard spot. That's why it's a really good story, frankly, right? I mean, and as evidenced by what happened with the Mori tweet, they're in a really difficult spot. I mean, you know, if you if you go back to that, the the NBA issues a statement after the Maury tweet, in which it 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 recognizes its it, and and effectively apologizes for offending so many of its Chinese fans, and it says that's regrettable. It also does say we support the sharing of views by our employees and others. But the first the first message from the NBA um, came off, at least to some people here in the states, as effectively defending China. And um, they were just shredded by politicians on both sides of the aisle. And, um, and then subsequent to that, Adam Silver issued a statement in which he reaffirmed his support for free speech, right? And so they're in this sort of no-win situation as a lot of these companies are, and trying to articulate that is difficult. You know, when we, when we did the story we did previously about training academies and the problems that they were having there, they had closed this, this training academy in Xinjiang. And we asked the deputy commissioner, Mark Tatum, why they had closed it and whether human rights had anything to do with it. And he just, he avoided the question like the plague. He wanted no, nothing to do with having to say anything about human rights issues. I think the league would say, like a lot of people do, is like, well, we can, we can say what we want and, and, and address the issues we want here in the States and, and the social justice issues we feel that we can address. And that doesn't mean we're required to deal with other social justice issues. And I, I don't, I would have no, I don't have any quibble with that one way or the other. I don't, I don't think that's the issue. The issue is you, you guys are doing business in China. China faces these very significant questions around its human rights abuses. You have a $5 billion entity there. And do you have anything to say about that? And um, I don't think anybody's required to take stances about social justice but they're in a complicated deal. And, and unfortunately for them, they're being asked about it. Mark Fainaru Wada and his brother, Steve Fainaru are the authors of a piece this week in ESPN about Joe Tsai, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets and the NBA's complicated, complicated relationship um, in China. Uh, I'm John Schrader. Thanks for being with us. Um, did you, were you pretty sure that Adam Silver wasn't going to talk to you, that Joe Tsai wasn't going to talk to you, uh, or, or maybe the question is better uh, uh, phrased, um, how do you deal with this when two of the major characters in your story uh, aren't going to talk to you? 
I mean, I think we've become somewhat used to this. I mean, when we were doing stories on the NBA, the NFL, I mean, we, we got shut down by them almost all the time. And so I, I think, you know, you go in, you know, you, that can't be a requirement of your story. Like you can't rely on that. I, you know, we made a ton of efforts to try and get um, Cy to go on the record and talk to us um, and to address these issues. And, um, you know, I, I, again, I think like the league, he's, in, and as is pointed out in the story, he's in a really difficult spot. And, um, you know, I think one thing is, you know, our experiences at the NBA is much more cooperative than the NFL is um, in terms of at least PR stand from a PR standpoint. You know, we have conversations with the PR folks at the league and they try to help and we can fact check with them and all of those things. Um, you know, Mike Bass is quoted in the story, um, uh, the, the head of, of communications for the league. Um, that kind of stuff really never happened for us with the NFL. They just they just really avoided us. So, you know, on the one hand, the league has been, you know, as cooperative, I think, as probably they could be. Um, on the other hand, again, I think they they can only do so much here. And as you mentioned, you guys worked on League of Denial. You wrote a book about it. You were involved in the documentary film that was put together that ESPN eventually decided not to be a part of. So you have plenty of rocky waters that you have navigated in these kinds of stories before. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm guessing that that NFL would have been uh, even more complicated and difficult for you to deal with. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, you know, again, this is not an uncomplicated story and the NBA didn't want it. But um, yeah, those issues around the NFL, you know, this is, I mean, you know, ESPN has a, I think it's, what is it, $2 billion a year contract with, with the NFL. You know, that nobody is even close to the NFL in terms of popularity. So, um, you know, the League of Denial, you know, experience was certainly the most challenging one we went, we've gone through. And you know, I, I always tell people around that two things can be equally true. You know, ESPN deciding at the last minute that it was no longer going to be have its name associated with the documentary was a really difficult thing to experience and worrisome from a journalism standpoint um, that they were making that call. And, and myself and Steve and all of our colleagues in the unit were really concerned about it, I think, and anybody who cared about journalism, the ESPN. Um, but at the same time, um, ESPN ended up backing the journalism. Um, you know, the documentary aired on Outside the Lines, two segments of it, just as was always planned. Um, we were interviewed repeatedly about it on, ES on the network. Um, ESPN ran a long excerpt of our book in the magazine and online, which was always the plan. And, um, and we continued to cover the NFL concussion story um, long after that issue happened. So, you know, it, it reflected the difficult stuff we've been talking about. At the same time, it didn't end up hurting the journalism. One thing that always comes to my mind is, um, is you, you work on a story like this and you get really close to the people you're working with, the editors, the reporters, the researchers, all of that. You do so much work with your brother. Um, yeah. so much writing and work with your brother and have for a number of years. What does that, how is that dynamic? Um, it's mostly great. I mean, I'm the <laughs> younger, I'm the younger brother. So I have, I have baby brother syndrome for sure. And um, I mean, he hates this topic because I always say the same thing and it bugs the hell out of him, which is like, you know, he's the Pulitzer winner in the family. 
you know, and that's pretty intimidating when you're working with somebody, you know, your older brother who's won the Pulitzer and covered the war in Iraq. And, you know, he's, he's just an unbelievable reporter. And that, that can be sort of intimidating. And, you know, he scoffs at that because he thinks I'm just, you know, foolish to be saying it and um, that I got to get over it. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. And so for the most part, other than, you know, I think periods of time during the book writing process, which he thrives on much more than I do, um, you know, that was probably the hardest time, but mostly it's, it's fantastic. I mean, we get to travel together, um, on a lot of stories. We, we talk all the time, we write together, we, you know, the reporting is fun. We both have the same mentality, I think, about wanting to do stories that really matter and have impact in the world and, um, and mean something to society and, you know, feel like you're making change, which is, you know, every reporter's dream. So I think we both have sort of similar sensibilities about what we want to be doing. And, um, you know, it's just the two of us, we don't have any other siblings. And so I, I mostly feel just unbelievably lucky. You know, it's, it's a really cool thing. So how do you share the work when it comes to the writing and reporting? Is, do you write half of it? Do you, is one of you a little bit more of a prolific writer than the other? Or how do you share that? I mean, it's a mixed bag usually, it depends on the story. Um, Steve's a better writer than I am. So oftentimes, um, you know, what, what we'll do is one will write a first draft and then we'll trade drafts. In the book, we, uh, we, we just took different chapters of the book and then we traded them off and edited each other. And then, and then Steve took it from there and sort of made sure we had the same voice. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think it's a, mix, it's a mixed bag usually, but you know, the reporting's always sort of split pretty evenly. And, um, and then, you know, usually one of us will write a draft, more often than not Steve, and, uh, and we'll trade it and do a lot of editing. So you mentioned that you wanna, you wanna do good in the world, that you wanna make some change. And is this a good case study of what you guys are doing to say to sports journalists, to sports consumers, that yes, in a huge sports media company that has billions of dollars invested all over the world, that uh, to people who are interested in this, that yes, you can find a place here where journalism is really important, where what we're doing is really important and we're showing the world that we can do this. I mean, I'd like to think so. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I, you know, I, on a daily basis, I just think of it as my job and I'm, you know, and I'm really lucky that I've got it. And, yeah. you know, especially after the pandemic and, you know, some of my colleagues lost their jobs and, um, you know, and, and we recognize, I think, in the grand scheme of the network, we're this little bitsy little thing, right? And, um, you know, the network is driven by games and, um, and, and trades and, and news and people talking about those things all the time. And um, I think we just feel really lucky to have this opportunity. Um, you know, investigative reporting is really expensive, unfortunately. And um, one of the beauties of working at ESPN is that you know, you've got the resources provided to spend a year on a story like this, or, you know, Steve did a story involving, you know, a Syrian soccer, Syrian national soccer team and spends, you know, time traveling all over the world. I did a story on um, Russia's influence on the Olympic movement and, and FIFA, and, you know, we flew all over the world, including Russia. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it's like, again, I think, as I said earlier, Steve and I, and I think all the guys and our people in our unit, just thrive on feeling like we can do work that, you know, in some way is going to make a difference. And, and gratefully, you know, ESPN continues to support our ability to do that. So we're having this conversation just hours really after this story is published. Uh, 
in those hours, um, you've heard, have you heard from the NBA and what do you hear from just regular average Joe uh, fans about the work? I mean, I, you know, the NBA had a quibbled with a couple of little issues, even beyond the long conversations we'd had with them before the story ran. So, but that's the extent of it. I mean, they're, you know, they're not happy with elements of the story, but it is what it is. And, um, you know, the feedback so far has been really, really positive. And it, you know, it's always hard for me to know how much a story is moving really, you know, there's a ton of feedback on Twitter, but I feel like that's not always indicative of whether a story is really moving. It's Twitter, it's this own little small world. Um, so I don't know what the numbers are, but um, you know, I, I think one of the one of the sort of reaffirming messages that I really like to see, which we've gotten from a number of of followers, is it's really cool that ESPN is doing this story, or I'm surprised that ESPN did this story, and um, you know, it's 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 you know it's um, it speaks well of ESPN's journalism that they did this story, you know, and it and it and and that's addressing the issues we've been talking about. So do you hear from that from your colleagues as well as your competitors? Yeah, I think we, well, I mean, I think we hear it, I, you know, I don't think competitors are like tweeting about it because I don't think they want to look like they're like, why would ESPN do that? But I, I think, you know, I certainly talk, I have plenty of friends who are not at ESPN who, you know, ask about this question all the time that you're asking, like, how do you guys do this? And, you know, I think they're really pleased to hear that we're able to, um, you know, and then it's, but, I, but when I say like these people are tweeting this, it's just random people, you know, it's followers of ours who, who say this. And then, you know, it's also gratifying to see people who you respect in the field, you know, saying really, you know, generous things about you. So um, would you label what you do as uh, fun? Everybody wants to enjoy their job. Everybody wants to have fun and and get up in the morning and say, woohoo, I'm going to work. Is that, is that how you look at this? I, I love my job. I'm really lucky. I mean, I, I am, I'm just ridiculously lucky. You know, I get, I get paid more than I imagined I'd ever be paid to do journalism. And, uh, but better than that, I'm getting to do stories I really care about. And, uh, you know, I get to work with my brother all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I, I enjoy the people I work with. The stories are really interesting and fascinating. I mean, I, you know, I, I was ready to be done with this story because it took a while. But I, I find this topic so fascinating. I mean, it's it's really the the tension that the league faces, you know, is a story. Like, right? you know, you just can't get around it. And I, I find that so so interesting. So, and and I find Cy really fascinating. So I'm mostly I love my job. I'm really lucky. Can you tease us a little bit about what maybe the next um, the thing with the NBA or with the because you know we know that investigative reporters do stories and they say, well, you know, there's another story here. We're working on this yeah. one, but there's something coming up in the future. Well, I think I would say, I mean, I'm actually looking for a new story, so feel free to let me, you know, pitch okay. ideas or whatever, but that. I, but I, but I do, I do, you know, I think there's a lot of fodder here. Like, I don't, you know, I don't think we're done with this topic. Cause I just think that's, there's so much there. I mean, you know, Cy, while he is personifies these issues, you know, as we point out in the story, he's far from the only owner who has business interests in China and, and who face these sort of delicate dances. And so um, I just think there's, again, you know, until the Maury tweet, there were very rarely any, if any stories sort of um, even thinking about this conflict. And so, uh, so to me, I, I, I just find it again, fascinating and, and, uh, and we're chasing some more. I don't know where it'll exactly lead us, mm -hmm. but, but I'm not, I don't feel like we're done with it. 
And you even drop a couple of names, including a Mickey Arison, uh, who owns the Miami Heat, and a guy named Michael Jordan, who happens to own a basketball team in the league as well, and has a, apparently a couple of other business interests, too. Yeah, well, you know, Nike does a little bit of business in China, <laughs> right? It's like, I think I think the number, I can't remember, is like 19% of, uh, of revenues are coming out of China, supposedly. So, um, you know, these are issues, you know, these are major businessmen who own these teams, obviously, right? And so... China is the largest economy in the world. And so it only stands to reason that, that a lot of people are going to have business interest in China and um, you know, what, what that means for them and what the companies they have relationships with is really fascinating, I think. And it really does, as we wrap this up, it really does present what has always been a, um, a kind of a challenge for us as Americans. You know, we live in a capitalist society. Capitalism is one of our most cherished values in this country, right? First Amendment is our cherished value. We've learned that social justice is important to us. And, and, and all of these things collide occasionally and they run into each other and they bump into each other. And, and so if you're going to be a capitalist, you've got to go where the market is. And sometimes you apparently um, have to overlook some of the the downsides of that market in which you're um, doing business. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I think what I, I think what I find interesting about it is, you know, again, I, I don't say this as like what's right or wrong. I just think, you know, Sai points out rightly so, you know, China is not a, a multi-party state, right? It's a, it's a, it's a authoritarian government that's, that's run by a single party. And, you know, one of the things I've heard him say in in speeches is, you know, look, there's a benefit to that in some cases, not having to deal with the sort of political infighting and um, and bureaucracy that takes a while to build a, you know, a highway or whatever. And the extension for him to that is, so if it means, you know, some less freedoms around speech, around dissent, around the ability to assemble and protest in the name of economic growth for people, then he's going to say, I, I think that's a trade-off worth worth having. Um, you know, as we say, I think that's a controversial position, and, and it is a difficult one, I think, for Americans to embrace. Well, as an American, I will take a position on this, and that I do, I am concerned about, um, about the First Amendment. I am concerned about uh, ability to, uh, to, to have dissent. I am concerned about the business relationships we have with uh, with folks that um, whose, whose practices are questionable. And I think a lot of Americans feel that way, but we also wanna make money and have a job and, 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 and earn a living and, and, and watch ESPN and, and enjoy the NBA. So we're all conflicted, I guess. We're all conflicted. <laughs> Thank you for your time. I appreciate it, Mark. I know you're a busy man and uh, congratulations as always on the great work. Thanks, John, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, for the, thanks for your interest. Sure. Uh, Mark Fainaru Wada and Steve Fainaru, uh, brothers in arms and in work, have published a, a piece in ESPN titled Brooklyn Nets owner Joe Tsai is the face of NBA's uneasy China relationship. And Mark's been good enough to spend a few minutes chatting with us about that. I'm John Schrader, and this is Watch the Media. <laughs>